It's time for Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group with financial advisors Kevin Corhorn, Mike Bernard, and Josh Gregory. The Wise Money Show is brought to you by the attorneys at South Bank Legal, First State Bank, Diane Bennett and the Inspired Homes Team, and Bethel University Adult and Graduate Studies. Welcome to another episode of the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group, where every week we're helping you take your next wise step in your financial life. Thanks for being here, friends. My name is Mike Bernard. I'm your host. I'm also one of the CFPs on the program. And with me in the KFG studios, my business partners and fellow CFPs, Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory. International investments have lagged U.S. markets for almost 15 years now. So is it still wise to invest outside the U.S.? Or is that an outdated investment approach? We'll give you our approach and our opinion on today's episode. That's right. That's right. Gosh, this is a tricky one. Okay. So you go back way, way, way back conventional investment um, uh, approach, modern investment theory, which isn't too modern anymore. It's created in the 50s. Um, or are things different? Is it different today? We're going to talk about that right now. If you have questions for the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can uh, you can find us online, wisemoneyshow.com, or you can call or text 574-222-2000. That's 574-222-2000. Most questions, engagement come through social media. You'll find us and the YouTube channel and Facebook, wherever you're at, we're there as well. Just search the Wise Money Show, follow us there. All right. Uh, every September and October, except for the ones where this isn't true, uh, get a little chaotic. And that's been the case this year. If you just go back and look at the data. It's it's not September and October doom and gloom. It's, you know, we do get some volatility September, October uh, at times, but it's not as predictable as what everyone makes it out to be. But I know markets change a lot in the past couple of weeks. Yeah. Well, and- here's the thing. If you can draw a, if you can look at a, a chart, a stock market chart, and draw a straight line, that market's rigged, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so, so ups... Or it's going to be a flat straight line, right? Right. So so ups and downs, that's a component of yeah. the stock market and of investing. Yeah. I, uh, earlier this month, our KFG newsletter sort of thing is at KFG's top three, and I shared some details, uh, some historical perspective. But anyway, so at the end of the third quarter, U.S. markets say we're up about 15%. International markets, not emerging markets, international, they were up about nine. So you'd say, oh, psh, I'll, take, I'll take either of those, okay? But there is one that's higher than the other, okay? Out of the last 10 years, eight of those 10 U.S. markets have beaten international. And the two that they didn't, it was close. Mm-hmm. So if you look at over those 15-year time period, Josh, that you talked about, if we, were, if we had a graph in front of us over 15 years, U.S. markets have just clobbered international. So... Do you still hold international, or is this just is this, is this an outdated approach? What do you do? Well, so let's talk about that outperformance for a second, because I mean this this happens anytime that you break investments down into multiple categories or groupings, it's just sort of ripe for doing a comparison, and one's going to outperform the other. And we've now been in the longest that I've ever seen, longest stretch where the U.S. investments are outpacing international. You go back 15 years and there was a stretch where international was winning the foot race. And before that, it was domestic or US again. And and so there's kind of this flip-flopping back and forth. And uh, the the outperformance has been pretty pretty remarkable. But to believe that it's just always going to be this way, Mm -hmm. I think would be foolish. Although you could get lulled into thinking that when this has been going 
like twice as long as any time that international investments have outperformed the U.S. They've only done it for stretches maybe as long as seven, seven and a half years or so. Mm -hmm. And so this is just an unusual time. And, and the risk is that you start building a philosophy based on what you've known in these few recent years, and you project that out in the future, you may be setting yourself up to get burned. Yeah, if, if you look at the all-country world index from 2000 to 2018, there's 45 countries, the United States... In that time period, that 18-year time period, of the 45 countries in the all-country world index, the United States ranked 27. Hmm. And what, healthcare? <laughs> no education. Oh. No, uh, not funny, wow. Mike. So, <laughs> no, in, in returns yeah. on their stock market. And so it's confusing because we have all kinds of biases. We have recency bias. We have... I live here bias, we have I know this company bias, we know we have this, I get my coffee at Starbucks, so I wanna invest in Starbucks yeah. bias. The Amazon guy comes five times a day, so I wanna own Amazon bias. Yeah. So this is, it's, it's a little bit confusing. And the other interesting thing is it is truly difficult to get a, a US company. So what is a U.S. company? If I'm a car manufacturer and 45% of the, the, the components of my car are manufactured overseas, am I really a U.S. company? Yeah. Okay, so the, uh, you, you've read my mind, Kevin. And, you know, every, so everything's organic with the Wise Money Show. Uh, I come up with certain topics, whatever, and nothing scripted. We just talk about this stuff. And I was doing some research. And there's an indicator called the Buffett indicator that is one of the things you might look to to say, is the market cheap or expensive? And the Buffett indicator is basically an analysis of the overall U.S. market cap, so the stock market value, compared to the annual GDP of the U.S. And I, what would you say, Josh, if you were to look at the Buffett indicator, you, you would run for the hills like it is alarmingly high never been this high yep. never ever ever we are at 232 percent i'm looking at it right now i have no idea uh the date you're listening to this but 232 percent market value compared to annual gdp uh, you know when it gets over 100 you get nervous and we're like wild okay now urian timmer the uh, an economist money manager through fidelity said it's bogus this bogus indicator, this is outdated. Of these U.S. companies, how much of their market value is really derived from sales outside of the U.S.? So you're comparing companies' value on a global scale to the U.S. economic scale. That's a, that's a false measure. So then he backed the data up and whatever and said, if you look at U.S. market cap compared to sort of globalized GDP, yeah, it's still high, but it's not like, you know, run for the hills. So then I thought, well, wait a second. One of the debates, one of the issues with do you still need to invest internationally is your U.S. blue chip companies, your large cap U.S., these are all global companies anyways. You would even consider the small cap companies are global companies. So is it still necessary or are you getting this small or excuse me, this international exposure just by holding great companies here in the U.S.? So that 
Well, Josh, do you want to answer that question? No, go ahead. Or, okay. Well, I, I'm just thinking about this, and you think, well, what? So, if you look around your house, do you, do you eat Nestle chocolate? Do you have a Samsung phone? Do you have a Toyota in your in your garage? Now, that Toyota could be assembled in Ohio, mm-hmm. um, but do you have a Toyota? Do you have L'Oreal Cosmetics? So we were at the. At but even Apple, like right, you 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 open that that Apple box, and I mean, oh, that's that is fun, <laughs> like the way they package that thing. Ooh, that is just that's they, enjoyable. This, this My labor. son really likes to peel the plastic <laughs> yeah. off, and but I love how you know there's there's a couple ways to say things. Like you read, you look at the back of a lot of products and it says made in China, but you look at Apple and it says designed in Cupertino. Like, <laughs> we're not going to tell you where it was made, but this was designed yeah. in the U.S. Made by Foxconn in China by slave labor. <laughs> exactly. So. so no, so I so if you but if you think about that, so we're at the top of the Saint Pierre Cathedral in Geneva, Switzerland. And um, we're talking to some guys. They're pilots for Nestle, and the and the Nestle uh, uh, headquarters, I think, is in Montreux, or it's just it's right down the, the street from where we were. And they were talking about the sales of frozen pizza in the United States, but Nestle's a, a Swiss company. Ah, hmm. so it's it's this is very very interesting. We may need to pick this well, up. Well, because I was going to ask, you know, do you think people in France are looking at their are, are sitting down with their CFP saying, "All right, I want fifty percent of my stocks in the U.S. <laughs> and then I want everything else. I want broad international." Uh, sir, you live in France. Do you want any French exposure? No, I want U.S. and then international. Wee oui, wee. Oui. So we're going to pick this back up. Should you still have investment exposure in international markets? That and more coming up on the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Should you still invest in international stocks or? You know, with the outperformance the U.S. has had recently, do you say, no, that's probably an outdated approach. It's different this time. Well, we're talking about that, debating it, helping you take your next wise step with your investment allocation right now. This is the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Thanks for being here. My name is Mike Bernard. With me in the KFG studios, Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory. Every episode is on podcast, so if you've missed anything, you want to binge listen, you want to speed us up, uh, speed Kevin up, slow me down, do <laughs> keep Josh the same, I don't know, you can do that on podcast wherever you listen, search the Wise Money Show, subscribe, rate the show as well, we appreciate it. All right, international investing, is it is it dead? We have, I mean, large cap, so there's, in the U.S., there's this sort of mega cap, there's large cap, there's mid cap, there's small cap. Listen, these are all huge companies mm-hmm. that are all doing business on a global scale. And due to technology and everything that's happened over the past 20 years, it's a global market. So yeah, Josh, you're right. I can I can throw the details up there right now. Let me see if I can I can get them and tell you, you know, the past the past 10 years have been owned by the US. Yep. The prior 10 years was owned by international. The 10 years prior to that, U.S., 10 years prior to that, international. It has gone back and forth every 10 years. So is that going to continue or are things different? Should you still invest internationally? More more, perspe- more perspective, guys. Well, I guess my opinion is just don't bet the farm either direction at this point. Because if you're going to bet on which horse is winning the race right now, you would say, yeah, U.S. investments. But Anytime I've ever seen someone try to overload one direction or another, it's never worked out well for them. I remember inheriting a client one time. Uh, she, I had been working with her husband. He passed away, and uh, she kind of took over the finances when he had previously kind of been the the pilot of everything. And uh, she read a book 
by the founder of Vanguard, Jack Bogle, mm. who believed you shouldn't invest in international at all. Isn't that interesting? That's crazy. Now, I would have... I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, but he, he didn't believe in investing in it um, at, at all, even though he did have his firm create mutual funds that did so that their customers would. But he, he didn't eat any of that cooking. And uh, this particular client wanted to only invest in Vanguard investments, but wanted to be pretty much all international. Oh, <laughs> and why? Funny. Because it was... 2009, 2010, right after a long international run where internationals, yeah. you know, whooping uh, U.S.'s tail. And uh, it was the exact wrong thing to do. Obviously, we, we were not a good fit. She uh, decided to go kind of run her own portfolio and everything. And I, I don't know. I, I sometimes wonder how that all worked out. But you look at the past 15 years it wasn't a good time to be loading up on pure international. I, all right, I've got the data right here. I can't put it up on obviously YouTube or or whatever, but um, in the seventies, non-U.S. stocks averaged ten and a half percent return per year. U.S. stocks five in the seventies. In the eighties, non-U.S. stocks averaged twenty three percent a year. U.S. stocks seventeen. Is that okay? All Japan. Uh, just says non-U.S. stocks here. Looking at Robert Gibson, sort of the godfather of diversification. Um, in the t- in the 1990s, oh, tech went crazy. So U.S. investments up 19% per year. U.S. or inter- international, excuse me, were only up seven. In the 2000s, though, international came back and won. In that in that this is the lost decade. U.S. stocks were down one percent mm-hmm. during that decade. International markets up almost two, and then yeah, two percent, two percent. And uh, yeah, in the two in the twenty tens, U.S. has just clobbered international. It's not even close. So it goes back and forth. I, I guess my question then is, um, yeah. So Josh, I think you're right. The the that investment approach often people take in their four hundred one ks and they look at their statement and they look at the front page and they say, oh that performance is good or bad, or I have certain feelings about that. They flip the page and normally on page two or page three, you've got the list of your investment choices. Looks like sort of the matrix or an almanac or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you look for the one that has the best return most recently and say, that one must be good. And these others must be bad. Yeah. And that is not a momentum approach, folks. Mm-hmm. We believe in momentum investing. That is not momentum investing. That's following the crowd. That's being a lemon. And these, yeah. A in lemon? Fact, Lemmings, okay. sorry, yes. The, uh, the <laughs> or lemon, right? It could just be a sour face if you're doing that. You certainly would have a sour face if you were doing that. Uh, but if, uh, if, if that's your strategy, you're just sort of chasing winners, and uh, which tends to yeah, that's that's what makes us bad investors. I mean, yeah. if you if you look at the all country world index and you so call it 45 countries, including the U.S., and you said, well, what portion does the U.S. stock market represent of that? It's about 57% of the equities in that world, all-country world index. But if you look at the average U.S. portfolio, it has 75% in U.S. equities. So you would say um, these most people's portfolios are overweighted towards domestic, yeah. not towards international and, and that's a bias what, what do they call that like a local lo, 
local bias or something like that. There, there have been some studies that look yeah. even within the country and say if if you live down in the Texas area, you're going to have in your portfolio more energy-related companies. If you're out west, it's more tech. If yeah. you're on the east coast, it's more financial. So we, we tend to invest in what we know or what's familiar and maybe ignore the fact that what you're investing in is not even a good deal right now, potentially. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one thing that I was looking at uh, in preparation for the show is we, we often use a, a measure called the P.E. ratio in order to determine is a stock or a basket of stocks, is it expensive or is it cheap compared to history? And right now, if you were to look at all the major players, the major countries around the globe, Almost all of them, all of them but one, is at about an average price or even a little cheaper than normal, mm-hmm. except for one, and that one is the U.S. Yep. Outside the U.S., things are, are relatively cheap. You, you might argue that there's some bargains to be had outside the U.S. and inside the U.S. Things have been running so strong. Again, we said for 14 years now, the U.S. has been outperforming the rest of the world in the, in the stock market. You, what does Jack Vogel say about the P.E. ratio? Do you know? I don't. So he says, long term, investment returns come from two different places, dividends and earnings. Right? Those are connected, obviously. Right. P.E. doesn't matter. Over 100 years, it will wash out. Sometimes markets, and, and Benjamin Graham said, Mr. Market, will pay a lot. Sometimes they'll pay a little. He, Jack Vogel says, you give it 100 years, it will wash out. I kind of agree with him. But how how many investors have a hundred year time horizon though? Yeah, yeah, and and that makes the case for being careful about how you invest because if you look at the makeup of either the Dow, everyone talks about the Dow. Well, the Dow is the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is thirty companies. Look at the makeup of that today versus when I got in the business twenty eight years ago, or the the makeup of the S and P five hundred. Even even the sectors, mm-hmm. per, percentage wise. Of those companies, so um, and you could say, well, it, it averages out over a hundred years. And to Josh's point, who has a hundred years? But how many of these companies? I mean, Woolworths. Do you guys remember that one? What was that? Woolworths. <laughs> Woolworths. <laughs> yeah. Some of the oldsters who are listening, uh, are, it's like the five and dime store, or just oh well, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 yeah, or just I mean, it, you could even just say Enron, or you, you could even say GE. I mean, there was a time when GE was the company. Yeah, uh, serious. Yeah. yeah, not anymore. It's interesting. You you just own the S and P five hundred. You're going to own the winners. Like by default, those are the five hundred biggest yeah. companies by biggest based on market cap. And so, therefore, as a company grows their market cap, owning the index means you're going to own those winners. I, let's get let's. I want to get more tangible though. When we come back, I want to talk about okay. Well, then, how do you structure an investment portfolio if we're still saying? Yeah, I can't bet the farm. How much do you put in international and how do you structure it? We're gonna, we got that more coming up on the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. What what should your investment approach be? What should your investment philosophy be? I mean, in, in the context of international versus U.S. investing, what should your allocation be? What should your mix be? When should you make decisions? We're helping you with that right now. This is the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Thanks for being here. My name is Mike Bernard. Here with me in the KFG studios, Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory. Stay up to date on all Wise Money content online, wisemoneyshow.com, and wherever you're at in social media, just search and follow the Wise Money Show. 
All right, let's make it practical. I mean, I, I think in a in a broad sense, we've said yes, yes. We've been through a season where U.S. investments have outperformed international. If you look back in previous kind of chunks of history, it does tend to go back and forth. Are there global dynamics in place now that suggest U.S. markets are more globalized and maybe because of political reasons or capitalistic reasons or whatever, they're positioned well to compete globally? Maybe. And if that's the case, maybe that means you overweight U.S. and underweight international. I don't think anyone here has said you got to abandon international. No. No, you know, I, I was I was thinking about this even on the break, and um, I, I met with some folks a week ago, and I asked them, they, they were new um, to our office, and I asked them, well, how do you make your investment decisions? And they're like, well, I don't know, our, you know, our investment guy does that. And um, and he said, but I, you know, I check it ten times a day. Oh my! I, um, so it's 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 very interesting because sometimes I think about this, and we are we're, we are a show about financial planning. We don't spend a lot of time talking about investments. Today we are specifically talking about investments. And if you listen to this and it sounds like jargon or gobbledygook, then I would say, well, then you just need to delegate the investment planning, and then the execution of that plan to a super capable, competent uh, advisor. And, and so when you, when you look at this and you say, well, is an international stock investing dead? Well, there was a, you know, there was a cover of Time magazine. Um, there, there's a segment of this audience that doesn't know what a magazine is. But um, <laughs> anyways, that said equities are dead. It was in the late 70s. Uh, because if you looked, there have been decades where you haven't made very much money. As a matter of fact, there was the lost decade. And so you would have said, well, yeah, the worst thing that you could have done is been invested in the S&P 500. So, you know, is the S&P 500 a great investment? Well, it depends on the day that you ask. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But so international stock investing, we believe, is not dead. And it should be the component of an investment strategy yeah. And who wants to talk about Well, the, the place where it fits is in a diversified portfolio. And there's an entire philosophy that says the most important decision that you have to make when it comes to your investments is how you divide up all the, all the dollars into various ingredients. What recipe are you going to follow when you're building your overall um, portfolio? And uh, t- to me, the, the whole idea is, or, or was at least, um, that if you get investments that don't all behave the same way, that one might be up when others are down, but there's going to come a day when the tables are turned and uh, the, those former losers become the stars again. If that happens in a portfolio, you by, by definition, you're never going to perform. You yourself are never going to perform as well as your best performer because you've got other things that are kind of dragging on the performance right now. But but the opposite is true as well. You should never have that knockout punch either yep. uh, that might happen to one small area of, a, of your portfolio, but not the whole. And so diversification should be something that helps to smooth out the roller coaster ride that you're on. And for many people, that deals with the psychology of investing. Can I handle the swings, the ups and downs over time? If I can't, then most likely it's the downswing that's going to take me out because I just won't be able to handle it anymore. And I will, 
I'll take some action that is self-defeating in some way. It hurts me mm-hmm. to sell at the at the bottom. So diversification helps to um, kind of control the emotional swings for a lot of people. And international investments, back when this theory was created, they were very different than United States-type investments. You know, the world has gotten smaller, though, since then. And uh, our economies are more interrelated. The companies that you're investing in themselves have operations all around the globe. So there's been sort of this blurring of the lines between a U.S.-based company and an international-based company. But that doesn't change the fact that you still need to be diversified. Mm-hmm. And it's it's more than just U.S. and international. There are other things like real estate and commodities and bonds, uh, other types of investments that help to spread the risk around. That's what you have to decide. That is one of the methods of, of investing. It's different than the other approach that we often talk about, which is the dynamic approach. Which is, a, yeah, the momentum strategy. We call it dynamic. And I, I'm going to tell you right now on the Wise Money Show, Josh is the one that came up with calling a momentum strategy dynamic. And now that's industry. Like industry says that. So I don't think Josh became famous there, but I was in the room when he said, this is like a dynamic strategy. And now that's what the industry calls it. So anyway, the the idea is when you're looking at your investment portfolio and your financial goals, you've got to structure that investment portfolio, that investment approach to match and line up with your financial goals. Yes, you have to be able to sleep at night. Yes, you have to make sure that you're taking the right level of risk uh, to to meet those goals. But it all just needs to be in sync. Now, within that framework, then you've got to choose what's your philosophy and our philosophy is a having a diversified mix of great long-term low-cost investments complemented with a momentum strategy is momentum perfect no but between the two of them what it means is you've got your feet kind of solidly you know you're in an athletic position here right you've got you've got coverage on everything because you've got say 50% or a chunk of your portfolio in a diversified model so you're not bailing out of international stocks or real estate or whatever when that's going bad. But then you've got this momentum strategy for the other half or third or whatever of your portfolio that is actively looking amongst all of those asset categories, those different investment areas, saying which areas have the most momentum and they're allocating there. So when you look at those two pieces together, you're by default holding everything, but you're overweighting what's been working. Mm-hmm and systematically underweighting what hasn't been working. So yeah, if the last decade has been not that great for international, I can't remember a time we had international investments in dynamic. We had- It's been a long time. We had emerging markets a little bit last fall, uh, but that was it, Mm -hmm. right? So you've still held it, but you haven't been overweighting it. And so dynamic this year, you know, so momentum, it doesn't change every day. Markets this year have been very strange. And I'm gonna say because of the manipulation and other things. They're just not moving normally. Um, Momentum typically changes two to three weeks. And we had at the beginning of the year or um, spring, a couple uh, strung together, two or three week time periods that were very extreme in certain areas, a 20% drop, and then a quick rebound, and then another 20% drop. So momentum has struggled this year. It's lagged. But there's still validity to the strategy of having that base diversification and then overweighting that by complementing it with a momentum strategy. That's right. And it's one of the most important disciplines that you can build into your investment approach 
is this idea of rebalancing over time. Uh, we, we planted a garden this year, and it hasn't been a great year in, in the garden. The zucchini, like, took over yeah. everything. It's <laughs> like they thought we built this garden just for them. And, uh, you know, carrots got crowded out. Everything did. And so the, the question is, in the investment world, do you let your winners keep on running or do you prune them back to make room for other things? And that, that's a philosophical question. But over time, by rebalancing your portfolio and getting back to your overall game plan when something's outperforming others, um, that's, that actually adds performance to your portfolio, but it also is just, it's just disciplined. It's something you have to do. And when one philosophy is outperforming the other, celebrate that, but then get back on track, get your portfolio back in line. We got a question here, whether gold is something you should be buying right now. We got that and more coming up on the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Should you invest in in gold? Is gold, you know, with all this inflation talk and gold has not performed well this year, do you is now the time to jump in? We're talking about international investing. What about what about good old-fashioned gold investing? We're talking about that question from the YouTube channel. This is the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Thanks for being here. My name is Mike Bernard. Here with me in the KFG studios, Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory. Speaking of the YouTube channel, every episode's there, as well as Next Wise Step videos that post all throughout the week. So go to YouTube, search the Wise Money Show, and follow us there. And I'm, I'm just going to tell you, we, we get most questions and comments, I don't know, several a day, uh, you know, maybe 15, 20 a day, depending. And uh, I've got two questions here. One's from Fern, the next one from Rose. And it just has me thinking. People use, <laughs> do you use your real name in YouTube? Now, listen, if you leave a comment, uh, you might get a heart or something like that from the Wise Money Show. You might get a comment from the Wise Money Show. It's typically me. And sometimes I just get lazy and I'm just on my own YouTube account and I'll comment. And listen, my YouTube handle is Michael Paul Bernard. Like there's no hiding it. So Fern, if that's your real name, thanks for the question. Rose, you as well. So Fern asked, uh, gold prices are very high even now. Do you think it's a good time to buy? Now, that's interesting. High relative to what? And this is my. This goes back to the crux of my issue with gold. How do you know? On what mathematical formula did you use to determine gold prices are high? Because I, you could look at inflation and say, we've had run-up inflation and we have not had run-up in gold price. Therefore, Gold is cheap. Mm-hmm. That's that's probably the only math I could I could do to determine whether gold is is high, low, is a good time to buy, a good time to sell. Um, so I would actually, Fern, thanks for the comment, but I would I would say I don't know if it it's high. It's actually you know down five percent when you look back over the past ten years or something like that. I did a whole whole video. Go to go to the YouTube channel, Wise Money YouTube channel. And I think it was maybe a month ago, Lindsay, I did a whole video breaking down gold and its performance. Over the past 10 years, one of the worst places you can invest money. And you, everyone thought, okay, well, now we've printed all this money. Gold's going to go crazy. And it didn't. It mm-hmm. has not. It has stunk. So I don't know if it's high. But my problem with gold is I, I can't tell. You can't mathematically. I can tell you mathematically that the stock market from a PE level is overvalued. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's justified, but maybe there'll be some geeky term, mean reversion. Maybe it'll come back to earth at some point. I can't do that math with gold. Right. Yeah, I I can tell you, I can do some math with gold, though. So let's do some math. In 1980, 
I could have bought gold for $843 an ounce. And if you said, well, okay, once you buy it for $843 an ounce in 1980, you have to wait until it gets above that to sell it. How long did I have to wait to sell that? Uh, early 2000s. I was going to say 20 years. I'm going to say years. 2006. Yeah, 2008. Crazy. I didn't, I, my, my gold was not worth what I paid for it in 1980 until 2008. So but almost why? three decades you were underwater. Three decades underwater. But what happened? Was there any inflation? That's the thing. In that time frame. That's the thing. The mm-hmm. last time we saw runaway inflation was uh, about the time Josh and I were born in late 70s and, and 80s, in early 80s. We had runaway inflation. And, um, you know, a, a time that if you look back, it's actually pretty stinking similar to what we're going through right now. Yep. And we'll see how this story is written. Um, but gold just ran up like crazy. And that, that data set right there occupies all, I mean, that, that sums up all of the, well, gold's a good inflation hedge. It's just because of that pocket right there. We've seen the highest inflation since that time we've seen in the past 12 months or so, and gold prices have been terrible. I think it could be because gold, in my opinion, it's pure speculation. Mm-hmm. It is pure speculation. And right now, the speculators have more fun speculating in digital gold. But, and, but that's because the, the way you make money in gold is you have to buy it cheap and sell it to someone else higher, right? You can't just hold it and receive rent payment from it. You can't just hold it and receive interest. You can't just hold it and receive dividends or anything. It's not like it's a, a corporation that's cranking out profits or anything like that. It is just a raw material that you have to hold it, and someday you hope that someone else believes it's worth more. I have to I have to interrupt and interject for the naysayers out there who are listening to Josh's explanation saying, yeah, but that's the same for any stock. Uh, I mean, the only way I can make money with Apple is to buy it low and sell it high. I understand that, but you can actually look at Apple's earnings. You can actually look and see, uh, did they issue a special dividend? What's their balance sheet look like? What are the fundamentals of this company that would suggest the price has some room to run in the future or not, something like that. You can't do that with gold. You can't. There's there, That information doesn't exist. Right. Yeah, and, and if you want to hear one of the smartest guys that I've ever heard talk about this, there's a there's a, go to YouTube and look up Michael Saylor. Watch it. You got to He's it, a lightning rod. And you got to be careful. He debates another, uh, uh, like a gold bug. Peter Schiff? I yeah, think it's Peter Schiff. I, so. I, so I don't know, but it, it who, who is. Are, I'm just going to tell you, both sort of a little nutty in their own camps, okay? But uh, Peter Schiff <laughs> is like, everything's got to be gold. And Michael Saylor, everything's got to be Bitcoin. And I would be careful to gravitate too close to those extremes. Yes. Right. So I would listen to Michael Saylor and put put uh, put an earplug in the Bitcoin ear. So just, just ignore what he's saying about Bitcoin, but listen to what he's saying about gold and listen to how the gold bug rebuts it. So, because the other thing that I look at, and I'm I'm an optimist, and I try to not be a cynic, but according to Good Jobs First, a resource organization that tracks corporate misdeeds, J.P. Morgan Chase has paid over 34 billion in fines since 2010 for a wide range of violations. So, why would J.P. Morgan be willing to pay that much in fines? Because they're able to manipulate the markets 
and the precious metals markets and make in excess of that amount of money. And that's what the fines were for? Yeah, for manipulating and, and, and all kinds of – so you'd have to, I would say, do your own research. Hmm. Um, but but these, these big banks that are too big to fail have just had incredible – they've paid incredible fees for doing bad things. So let's get back to gold then. And I've got the chart pulled up here, looking back over 35 years. Um, in 2011, it kissed uh, 1,800 an ounce. And then it dropped down to, what, 12, something like that. And last year, when we were told we we're going to get all this inflation, it surpassed 2,000 an ounce. 2,067 looks to me on this chart to be the high number. And then it's fizzled from there. Um, and we're at you're in the 1700s right now at the time we're recording. So over the over the past 10 years, you've had a zero return in gold. I wouldn't say that that's high, but I also wouldn't say then, well, geez, you better rush in and buy this thing because it's it's ready for, to break out. Um, it could is this something where maybe in this diversified model, if you if you like gold or something like that, you put a little play money, you put a couple percent of your portfolio in it. Uh, I mean, I like it now at seventeen hundred better than two thousand, right? With with all this inflation speculation going on, um, but it's not as it's not where you say, okay, let's let's make let's make a Roth IRA contribution this year and put it all into gold, right? We're not making that kind of recommendation, but um, to to me, the only play here on gold is is it part of a diversified portfolio? Because when we talk about diversification, which is what this show has been kind of hinting at this this whole hour, um, the, the question is, how do the various investments in your portfolio relate to each other? When one is up, is everything else up too? When one is up, is there something in your portfolio that's actually down and they move in opposite directions? Well, gold is one of those investments that often doesn't correlate or it doesn't move in the same direction as everything else in your portfolio. So it can actually help to do some of that smoothing at times. Can I arm wrestle you, Kevin? Go ahead. I want to take it. Go ahead. Because, just call me, go ahead. Uh, Because during, so so go go back to earlier when we were talking about that diversified model and, or diversified investment approach and a dynamic model. Why have both? Because during extreme market events, correlation goes to one. Let me say that in a non-geek way. During extreme times when no one wants to invest in anything, everything drops. So just, I want to piggyback on Josh's comment. Yeah, gold does tend to move as a diversifier, except during those extreme times. Until it doesn't. Until it doesn't. So (laughs) just look at March of 2020. Mm-hmm. Right when things started to go bad for the market in February, gold held up okay. And then in March, psh, nope. Look at gold in October of 2008. Oh, in September when the market was a little scary. Earlier in 2008, market was a little scary. Gold did fine. How did it do in October and November? Terrible. Like everything else everything because else, people yeah. went risk off, which is why you need a momentum strategy. Yeah, I mean, that's a tr- the tricky thing because a, a lot of people – if you say, well, how do I invest in gold if I want to get gold in my Roth area, this or that other thing? They're they're not invested in actual physical gold. They're invested in a derivative. Yep. And that's where the manipulation comes in. But Mike, you made a point about gold. You said gold is, has returned 0% or 
10 years. Over this. But you, what you didn't include was the dividend that your gold pays. <laughs> so Which if, is also if, if coincidentally you, 0%. If you include the dividend, what did gold return? 0%. So if so, the thing, one of the things that we're not huge fans of is gold. Gold as a form of currency, I can't, it's not practical to use gold. I can't take a little bit of gold and go buy a cup of coffee across the street. It's, and so it's it's not easily divisible. So there so when you look when you study money and and the properties of money, that's what and and I think you can buy I think you buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks uh with Bitcoin. Bitcoin? Yeah. I don't well. know. And I, I wouldn't know. The only thing I, I buy Starbucks with is my gold gift, card. Gift cards. <laughs> All those gift cards that I bundled together on this gold card. I haven't paid for a Starbucks in decades. Dude, Starbucks so. gift cards, that's like the, the, the eighth largest bank in the world. <laughs> so. But I'm telling you, in El Salvador, you could buy anything with your Bitcoin. Yeah. This is interesting, and and that this is not a show breaking down Bitcoin and gold. We've we've done a few, uh, <laughs> and we don't want to have that conversation. And, and no, I, I think I think it's I think it's fun and, and interesting. But um, Josh, what, what last? What would you say about the properties of gold and what's going on with interest rates? Kevin got us there with you know dividends and all that sort of stuff, but interest rates are are really really low. Wouldn't that make gold more attractive? I'm not. I'm not seeing it. Well, where, where so, are you going? so like one of the proponents, or one, of, if you look back at the history and uh, of gold, is when when interest rates are higher and that money instead of investing in gold could invest in something else that pays a dividend or pays some interest. You're better off doing that. But I would have thought again, high inflationary time, interest rates are really low. You're not losing out by speculating in gold a little bit, and yet the price. Performance over the past yeah. year has not I reflected that. Going. So anyway, but and that's true of all risky assets, right? If you yeah. can't earn something in the bank, then it causes people to reach for for more risk and more return. All right, thanks for the question, Fern. I hope that helps. That's all the time we have for today. I'm have Josh Gregory, Kevin Corhorn, all of us at KFG. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next Saturday for the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Securities offered through Silver Oak Securities, member FINRA slash SIPC. Advisory services offered through KFG Wealth Management, LLC. Doing business as Corhorn Financial Group. KFG Wealth Management, LLC and Silver Oak Securities Incorporated companies are unaffiliated. Stick that right. in your monetary pipe and smoke it. All right, here we go. <laughs> that's that's blooper. That's blooper. I want to make Kevin. a poster with that one. Actually, <laughs> so what was it? Stick that in your monetary pipe and smoke it. Yeah, that's brilliant. Not our best moment, but it's funny. <laughs> All right. <laughs>